Right, I, I don't know if you've ever uh, pondered the courtroom oath. I mean, everyone enjoys a good courtroom drama, Perry Mason and stuff like that. But I wonder if you've ever wondered why, when you go to court, if you have to be a witness or something, why the oath is as it, as it is. Because you have to swear that you'll tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And it's important to understand why it's worded in that particular way, because obviously a court of law is concerned with one thing. It's concerned with establishing the facts of the matter. Because only when the facts of the matter have been established can justice be done. And so therefore justice depends on finding out the truth. And of course I'm always remembered a friend of mine who's a dentist and he had to go to court and so he swore to tell the tooth, the whole tooth and nothing but the tooth. But what, what I want to, that was a joke, <laughs> okay, never mind. <laughs> so, yeah, so, so if court cases are concerned with finding out the truth, why can't the oath merely be, I swear to tell the truth? Can you see the point? You say, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Why isn't it enough to just say, I swear to tell the truth? And what I want to show you is because, and this might surprise you, truth alone is no good. In fact, truth on its own can be a lie. Now, let me give you an example. Supposing I'm selling a car. Okay, trust me, I'm a used car salesman. Okay, so I'm selling a car. Now imagine if in the advertisement I put, this car has had two careful owners. Now, that's absolutely true. Say that I owned the car and I was a really careful owner and the guy I bought it off was a really careful owner as well. So if I put in the advert, this car has had two careful owners, then that could be absolutely true. But now, imagine if I haven't told you in the advertisement that it actually also had three very careless owners before my friend bought it. You see the point? So merely the truth, insofar as it goes, can be of falsehood. This car's had two careful owners. True. But if you don't know about the three careless ones as well, what good is that to you? In fact, you've been misled. So therefore, truth on its own is no good. It's got to be the truth plus the whole truth. Right, okay. So therefore, when you go to court, why can't it be, I swear to tell the truth, and the whole truth. Why, why can't it just be that? Well, because that's no good either. You see, you can have the truth, and you can have the whole truth, and you can still have a falsehood. Let's go back to me trying to sell my car. This car has had one careful owner, and the bodywork is excellent. Now, let's suppose that's completely true. I bought the car from new, so it has indeed had one careful owner. And also, the bodywork is great. So you've got the truth and you've got the whole truth. But supposing then, 
I put in the advertisement that the car's done 95,000 miles when in fact it's done 250,000 miles and I clocked it before I put the advertisement in the paper. Can you see the point? If you've got the truth and the whole truth but then introduce into the mix something that isn't true you have still got a falsehood. So the question is, in all these examples of buying a used car, would you want to buy that car? Absolutely not. Because you've been told the truth about the car, you've been told the truth and the whole truth about the car, but it's still not a car that you're going to want to buy. And so therefore, can you see the point about the courtroom oath is that it's only when you've reached the truth the whole truth and nothing but the truth it's only then that you've got the actual truth so to speak in all its truthfulness so therefore the truth the whole truth and nothing but the truth and one might say well okay great that's very interesting but so what you know it's okay for law students they they need to know all about that but what's that got to do with us where you know we're kind of Christians well in actual fact this is one of the most important things that we as Christians need to understand if you go to John John's Gospel chapter 8 various verses that we're going to read now John 8 and I'm going to read verse 31 and 32 to the Jews who had believed him Jesus said if you hold to my teaching you are really my disciples then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free so here, Jesus is saying the freedom that we are going to be able to come into as believers in our salvation is all tied up with the truth that Jesus has told us. Now, back to the courtroom. How is it that you're able to get truth? It's only when you've got the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Truth is at the heart of our discipleship. Go to John chapter 17. And this is something Jesus said when he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. John 17. And in verse 17 he said, Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. So can you see our freedom as believers is all tied up with us being able to understand what truth is. And then more specifically, sanctification, that process of being set free from the power of sin in our lives, the whole work that God is doing in us day by day in order to bring us into an actual experience of holiness and freedom from our sinful natures. Here we see that Jesus again says that we're sanctified in the Father's truth. And so therefore we're seeing the fundamental importance of truth to our Christian lives. So therefore, and this is how it ties up with what I was saying about the courtroom oath. Whatever this truth is, 
We need it, the whole of it, and nothing but it. Can you see the point? Because only then are we truly apprehending the truth that is going to do the work in us, enabling us to grow in the Lord. Now I want you to actually see the Trinity in this now. Still in John 17, let's just go back to verse 3. Now Jesus said, now this is eternal life. He's speaking here to the Father, his Father in heaven. He says, now this is eternal life that they, i.e. those who are going to come to know the Lord, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So here we see the Father and he is the one true God. Still in John 14, go back, uh, in John's Gospel, go back to uh, chapter 14 and in verse 6. So we've seen the Father is the one true God. John 14 verse 6, Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. So here we see now Jesus as the Son, he is actually the truth embodied in human form. And still in chapter 14, but let's read verse 16 and 17. And Jesus said to the disciples, I will obey, sorry, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counsellor to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but uh, you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. So here the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Truth. So we see the Father is the one true God. Jesus is the truth and the Holy Spirit is the Trinity of Truth. Now John chapter 16 and verse 13 and we read when he, the Spirit of Truth comes he will guide you into all the truth. So what we have here is the trinity of truth. And we have the fact that the Holy Spirit is going to lead us into this truth that we need in order to know freedom as Christians and in order that we might be sanctified. So when we then ask the question, okay, so how do we access this truth? How did the spirit of truth, how is he going to lead us into all truth? Well, we know that what happened was the Holy Spirit gave a special anointing to certain people and all the truth that Jesus wanted to be added to what was then the Old Testament, all that truth was written down in the New Testament. So the Old Testament plus the New Testament, or in other words, the Bible as we have it today, it is the Bible that constitutes that truth that we need to apprehend in order to grow in the Lord. So we have, if you like, um, you know, a definition here. Truth equals the Word of God, which equals the Bible. 
And so we come now to the point of all this. If we are to be able to really grow in the Lord and come into the freedom he has from us, really know sanctification, becoming more and more like him, then the point is that we must be living on the basis of the word of God, the whole word of God, and nothing but the word of God. So what matters for us is that it's got to be the Bible, the whole Bible, and nothing but the Bible. And what I want you to understand is that in exactly the same way that the truth, without the whole truth and nothing but the truth, is no good, in exactly the same way that the truth plus the whole truth, but without nothing but the truth, is no good, what I've got to show you is that the Bible, without the whole Bible and nothing but the Bible, is no good. And the Bible plus the whole Bible, without nothing but the Bible, is no good. It's only when you've got the Bible, the whole Bible, and nothing but the Bible. Now let me break this down like I did with the court thing, the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Obviously, there are people who say, well, I'm a Christian, I live my life on the basis of the Bible. Okay? The Bible. Now, I want to show you that living your Christian life merely on the basis of the Bible is no good whatsoever. Every Christian lives their life on the basis of the Bible, but look at the false teaching and error and heresy that we see all around us in the Christian church. Let me give you examples. You can immediately see what I mean. Leadership by priesthood standing up at the altar interceding on your behalf with God. Now, I'll tell you, where does that come from? That comes from the Bible, doesn't it? In the Old Testament, it was all priests up at the altar interceding for the people. So, there you are. Leadership by priesthood and having altars and doing sacrifices and that makes you right with God. Where does that come from? That comes from the Bible. So, question. Um, are, the, are the Catholics right after all? I mean, it's all perfectly biblical, isn't it? Are they right? Are the Episcopalians right? I mean, they have priests, they have altars and stuff like that. Another example, having special places where God lives and you have to go there to worship. Well, I'll tell you, that that's what the Bible says, isn't it? The whole of the Old Testament was based on that. You had to go to the temple, or you had to go to the tabernacle, or you had to go where one of the, you know, sort of like the fathers had built a special altar in the middle of the wilderness, or something like that. I mean, I'll tell you, where does all that come from? It comes from the Bible. So, so therefore, again, are the Catholics right? Uh, yeah, I mean, can, can you see the point? Merely having the Bible is no good. I've got to tell you, in the Bible, if you read the Old Testament, of the Old Testament, bigamy was fine. God did not have a controversy with people having more than one wife in the Old Testament. So if you just want to go by the Bible, well, okay, let's hand it to the Mormons. They've got a biblical point, haven't they? Now, 
These are crass examples, but are you getting the point? All these things come from the Bible. So therefore, you could have three wives and say, well, perfectly biblical and technically yes it is perfectly biblical that did happen in the bible but is it right no of course it isn't because it's no use merely having the truth you've got to have the truth and the whole truth so therefore it's no use merely having uh, the Bible, you've got to have the Bible and the whole Bible. So hearing about two careful owners with this car you're thinking of buying is no good if you don't then go on and discover it also had three very careless drivers. Now, you've heard the saying, a little truth is dangerous. Yep. I've got to tell you, a little bit of the Bible is dangerous as well. It's got to be the Bible and the whole Bible. Okay. Right, so now let's say, well, okay, so maybe uh, we just need to live our lives on the basis of the Bible and the whole Bible. Now then, this, this changes absolutely everything. Now, go, go to Acts 20. Acts chapter 20. And in verses 26 and 27, Paul is, is here, he's with elders from the Ephesian churches. It's his last time with them. So he's giving them a bit of a, bit of a pep talk, alright. And he, he says this, Therefore I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole counsel of God. Now here's the point. The whole counsel of God. Not bits and pieces of it. Paul, in the time he spent with the churches in Ephesus, he brought to them the whole counsel of God. Go to 2 Timothy. Two Timothy chapter three and verse sixteen, and Paul says, "All Scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work." But can you see the point? He says, "All Scripture." Now, some Scripture is no good for that. In fact, some scripture on its own is a positive hindrance. Because if it lands you up with three wives, you're going to have a real problem being a man of God thoroughly equipped for every good work. You see the point? So therefore we're seeing that it's got to be the Bible and the whole Bible. And of course, the point is that God has unfolded truth throughout human history in a progressive way. So, up to the time of Jesus, in the previous 4,000 years or so, that truth had been given and, and people had written different bits of scripture and by a couple of hundred years before Jesus came, we had what we now call the Old Testament and it was progressively unfolding. Then with Jesus and the New Covenant, a whole lot more stuff is revealed. Now, once the New Testament was written, that's it. We have all the revelation that there is. But can you see, 
because it all unfolded in bits and pieces over a long period of time, it was only when you got to the point where you had the whole lot that you could therefore understand properly all the bits of revelation that had come before. You see the point? So although the Jews, although Israel, had the Old Testament scriptures, until the truth of the New Covenant, until the New Testament was fully written, there were many, many things in the Old Testament that could never make proper sense. Hence, from the Old Testament, you can argue for priesthood, for, you know, for, for multiple wives, for altars, for all kinds of things that in the light of the New Testament we know are wrong. So there's always a principle. Later, revelation always casts light on the revelation that has come before. So therefore, late, all previous revelation is interpreted in the light of revelation that comes later. Or to put it another way, later data always interprets previous data. So now we have another joke. Captain, may I speak with you later data? Okay, right, okay. That was a Star Trek joke, right. But can you see the point? It's only when you've got the whole of the revelation that you can then fully understand the point of revelation that had gone before. Therefore, in regards to that, go to 1 Peter. 1 Peter 2 verse 9. Now let's go back to what we were saying about priests and, and altars and, and stuff like that. And 1 Peter, uh, chapter 2 and verse 9, and he says, um, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation of people belonging to God. And so when you follow that theme throughout the New Testament, what you become aware of is that the reason that there was priesthood and altars and all that sort of thing in the Old Testament, it was all there as a picture of what Jesus was going to do as our great high priest and what therefore was going to be true of anyone who follows him and believes in him. Because think, what does a priest do? A priest mediates between God and man. Now then, if you're a believer in Jesus, if you know Jesus, then anyone who doesn't know the Lord, you can bring them to know the Lord. You can mediate between God and man. That makes you a priest because you know Jesus. Can you see the point? So this stuff about priesthood in the Old Testament, it was a picture of what was going to be true of Jesus and then true of everyone who follows him. So it's not a picture of church leadership at all. It's a picture of the fact that we know the Lord and can introduce other people to him. So therefore, in the New Testament, when we look at the question of church leadership, it's got nothing to do with priests. Church leadership is simply by elders and the whole priesthood thing was to do with something else entirely. So now, having the Bible and the whole Bible, it makes sense. We can see that indeed the Catholics and Episcopalians are not right in any way, shape or form at all. 
And if you go to Acts chapter 17 and verse 24, one of the things that Paul says is that God does not live in buildings made by hands. Right, so in the Old Testament, we have God moving in and out of tents, moving in and out of temples, and stuff like that. So, in the Old Testament, did God live in special buildings? Well, yeah, he did. I mean, obviously, he lived in heaven, he lives everywhere, just like he does now. But in the Old Testament, he did live in special places. But when we get into the New Testament, we discover that all that was a picture of Jesus and the church. How does that work? Well, because the temple, the tabernacle, this was where God lived. Now, when Jesus came, the Bible says, in him the fullness of the Godhead bodily dwelt. You see the point? God lived in Jesus, because Jesus was God become man. So therefore, the temple and the tabernacle, this idea of God living in special places, was a picture of the fact that God was going to become a man there was going to be a man that he lived in. And then, because we know Jesus, Jesus lives in us, the Father lives in us, the Holy Spirit lives in us, so the tabernacle and the temple and all that was a picture of the Christian life. It was only a temporary thing. So now, because Jesus has come, all that has passed away, and we simply discover, hey, Jesus lives in us. The church is the tabernacle now. The church is the temple. Believers are where Jesus lives. And so, therefore, it was never anything to do with the fact that the church should be going to special buildings in order to worship God. No, we are the living building that God lives in. And so, therefore, again, when you've got the Bible and the whole Bible, it's clear the Catholics, Episcopalians, etc. are completely wrong with all this stuff about you've got to have special sacred places where you go and worship God. And of course also you'll be glad to know the New Testament makes it absolutely clear that for us it is not God's will to have more than one wife. So again the New Covenant restored monogamy rather than polygamy. And I'm always reminded of the schoolboy who, in his kind of word definition class, was given the word monotony. He had to define the word monotony. So he stood up and he said, monotony is the state of being married to the same woman your whole life. All right. So, can you see the point? So again, when you've got the Bible and the whole Bible, all this becomes clear. All right. Now, I want to give you two more examples, and these are maybe somewhat more serious examples, so that you can really understand that the only way we can truly understand the Bible is when we're going with all of it, when we're looking at everything the Bible says about something in order to actually reach the truth. Okay. So, so this, this, this first example, and you know, it does matter, but, but in effect, this talk, we're looking at the whole area of how do you interpret the Bible properly. Now, there are lots of principles involved in that, but what we're doing here, the Bible, the whole Bible, and nothing but the Bible, is one of the most fundamental. So, if you go to Matthew, Matthew chapter 7 and verse 1, and we're going to be looking at... A, various verses that deal with a particular subject okay and 
In, in Matthew 7 verse 1, Jesus says, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. Now, here we have a clear statement by Jesus, Do not judge. Now, if you go over to Romans 14, Romans 14, now, obviously, by judging, what we're talking about here is when you are reaching a conclusion that you think someone is wrong. That's basically what judging is. And so we see that Jesus says, do not judge. Now, Romans 14 and let's read verse 4 first of all and then we'll read verse 13 so Romans 14 verse 4 who are you to judge someone else's servant to his own master he stands or falls and he will stand for the Lord is able to make him stand and then down in verse 13 therefore let us stop passing judgment on one another now here we have read something that Jesus said and now something that Paul says and there's absolutely no question that this is saying don't judge one another don't tell each other that you're wrong now when I became a Christian I obviously started to read the Bible and there were lots of things I was seeing in the Bible that the Christians who I was in fellowship having now become a Christian uh, kind of either weren't taking any notice of or actually doing the opposite. And so I, I started to say things like, well, hang on a sec, I don't under there's something wrong here. And I'd be pointing out verses in the Bible and saying, well, hang on a sec, what about... And I would be told, Beresford, don't judge. And I was silenced. And I was silenced by being pointed to these verses. Beresford, you mustn't judge us. Now, it raised a big question in my own mind because I'm thinking now on the basis of reading the Bible I'm saying that there are certain things here that are wrong that we need to look at I've got everyone in particular the minister or right, the priest in particular I've got all the leaders telling me Beresford be quiet it's wrong to judge and I'm sitting there and I'm thinking I'm saying I think there are things that are wrong and I'm being told it's wrong to say that anything is wrong and I'm thinking so why is it okay for you to tell me that I'm wrong for suggesting that something's wrong but it's wrong for me to suggest anything is wrong. Is it the point? So the thing was, I was being told, Beresford, you mustn't judge, and yet as I'm being told that, they're judging me. They're telling me I'm wrong to say anything's wrong. So I think, well, why is it all right for you to say that I'm wrong? But it's, it's you know, and I thought, I'm missing something here. This can't be right. Now, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Because remember, we're talking at this point about the Bible and the whole Bible. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul is writing about someone who was in the church who was living such a terrible life that Paul was saying to them, you shouldn't even let this person be in the church. Because 
he's living in a sinful way that if he's not willing to repent of it, you, you mustn't carry on having fellowship with him. So now let's read 1 Corinthians 5 uh, verses 9 to 13. And, uh, and Paul says, I have written to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother but who is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater, a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. With such a man do not even eat. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside the church? God will judge those outside expel the wicked man from among you. Now here we have a verse in the Bible where Paul is saying you must judge one another in the church. You think, hang on a sec, I was right, oh, it is alright for me to say that there are things that are wrong in the church. So we've got a thing here, in Matthew 7 Jesus says do not judge. In Romans 14 Paul says don't judge one another and in 1 Corinthians 5 Paul says you must be judging each other well okay so what's actually going on here now because we've got all everything the Bible says about this subject we can understand it fully because if you look carefully in Romans 14 Paul is dealing with areas like whether you eat meat or not whether you observe special days or not. And what Paul is saying, there are lots of things where Christians have different ways of doing things, but they're not things that are to do with being moral or immoral or anything like that. He says, these things are matters of conscience, so even though you might not agree with what that other Christian is doing, if it's in that kind of category then it's not for you to say that they're wrong it's purely a matter of their conscience they're not to have control over what you do in regards to that you leave each other alone you respect each other and you don't let those differences affect your fellowship with each other in any way and if one of those things is if there's someone in the church and they think that it's wrong to watch TV you honor that if that's their conscience it's right that they do that so when you have the round for dinner turn Star Trek off you see the point but just because I've got Christian friends who believe it's wrong to watch TV, that doesn't mean I can't watch Star Trek. If my conscience is cool with that, that's all right. Can you see the point? So therefore we see that the Bible says that when you get issues that are not moral matters, and it's not chapter and verse, then don't judge each other. But what we see here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, is that when it's a question, if you've got Christians in the church who are going morally against what the Bible teaches and you've got chapter and verse to show it's wrong, so the point is there's no debate about whether it's right or wrong to steal. 
That's not a matter of conscience. The Bible says do not steal. So if someone is stealing, then you must judge that, i.e. it's right to say, look, it's wrong that you're doing that, you've got to stop. And if the person won't repent, then it would even be to the point you might have to take it so far as to putting them out of the church. So what we're seeing is, on non-moral areas where there isn't clear chapter and verse, i.e. it's debatable, it's not clear, on any issues like that, we mustn't judge each other. We can debate our differences of understanding, that's absolutely valid. But never fall out, never separate, never lose friends, that's crazy. But if it's ever moral issues which are chapter and verse, then it's right that we judge each other. And then, when you go back to Matthew chapter 7, and you've got Jesus saying, do not judge that you be not judged, he then goes on to say, if your brother has got a speck in his eye, don't you dare try to remove that if you've got a log in yours. He says, first take the log out of your eye, then you can help him take the speck out of his eye. So what it transpires when Jesus says, do not judge or you will be judged, what Jesus is saying there is, you mustn't judge unrighteously or hypocritically. So the point is, if you're more guilty of something than your brother is, how can you go and correct him? You've got to make sure that you are not guilty of the thing that you're correcting someone else for. So we see in that aspect, again, it's not Jesus saying you mustn't ever judge, but what he's saying is you must never correct someone if you are guilty of the thing that you're correcting them for. Do you see what I mean? So therefore, when we put the whole Bible together, okay, you get the whole truth, you get the balance. Now, there are some Christians, and they, they are what, what, you know, what I call legalistic Christians. Now, let me explain what I mean by legalism. Legalism is a false teaching and legalism is when you impose more on people than the Bible does. So imagine, um, you know, if I, if I sort of thought, well, I, I, I think it's wrong to watch Star Trek, alright? So I went around to all the people like me trying to make them feel guilty for watching Star Trek. You see what I mean? And maybe saying, I can't have fellowship with you unless you repent of Star Trek. Now, I might be saying, well, until you can show me that in Scripture, I'm, I'm cool with watching Star Trek. And what legalists do is they take the verse about you've got to judge each other, and they go around judging everyone about everything, whether it's what the Bible says or not. Can you see the point? So all they're interested in is the Romans 14 verses. And they're unbalanced, so they become legalists. Now, there are other Christians that they are what the Bible calls licentious. And licentious means that you want to be free to do anything that you like. And the trouble with license, if legalism demands more of you than the Bible does, 
license is when we don't demand as much of each other as the Bible does. And so those Christians, they want to live in ways that the Bible says is wrong. And if you try and correct them, they say, oh, no, you know, look, you know, Romans 14, it says you mustn't judge your brother. You see what I mean? And so if you go with a bit of the Bible on one side alone, you fall into one error. But if you go with the other bit of the Bible on the other side, you fall into the equal and opposite error. It's only when you bring both together and have got the truth and the whole truth that you've actually got what the Bible says. So are you seeing here in this point of interpreting the Bible? You've got to make sure that on any issue or subject, it's no use just going with bits and pieces of what the Bible says about whatever it is. You've got to bring together everything the Bible says about it, and only then can you actually reach the truth. Now, there's a second uh, thing that I want to, to show you. Uh, you know, I mean, sort of, you know, I've done the, you know, the don't judge thing. But there's another false teaching that has been really in the church for, I mean, e easily 18, well, 1700 years really. And it's a false teaching which again has happened because of the failure to go with everything the Bible says about something rather than just going with little bits and pieces. And, uh, and, and this is actually one of the most evil false doctrines that Christians have ever adhered to. If you go to Deuteronomy 13, and you'll see what I mean about it being evil in, in just a moment. In Deuteronomy chapter 13, there are just various verses that uh, we're going to read. Deuteronomy 13. Uh, let's just start from verse 1. If a prophet or one who foretells by dreams appears among you and announces to you a miraculous sign or wonder, and if the sign or wonder of which he has spoken takes place, and he says, let us go after other gods, gods you have not known, and let us worship them, you must not listen to the words of the prophet or the dreamer. Now go to verse 5. That prophet or dreamer must be put to death because he preached rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. He has tried to turn you from the way the Lord your God commanded you to follow. You must purge the evil from among you. If your very own brother or your son or daughter or the wife you love entices you saying, let us go and worship other gods, gods that neither you nor your fathers have known, gods of the peoples around you, whether near or far, from one end of the land to the other, do not yield to him or listen to him. Show him no pity. Do not spare him or shield him you must certainly put him to death. Your hand must be the first in putting him to death and then the hands of all the people. Now this is from 
the Mosaic law, the law that God gave Moses on Mount Sinai. 613 laws. This is one of them. Now, this Mosaic law, or the Old Covenant, as it's referred to in the New Covenant, was a covenant between God and Israel as a nation. So part of the covenant was, it was the laws of the land. So the point is, if you lived in that country, then the laws of that country applied to you. Now, the idea of Israel is that Israel was never meant to have a king. God was supposed to be their king. I it was a theocracy. Now the point is, obviously we're aware that if you get idolatry or occultism or anything like that, that is trafficking with the devil. Whether you know it or not, it's trafficking with the devil with evil spirits. And remember, the number one law in the Mosaic law was that you will have no other gods. Alright, can you see? There's only one God, you have no other gods before the true God. And the stuff here that's being talked about is literally going after a God who doesn't exist. Alright? Now, if God is your king and you want to go after false gods, you're committing treason. Can you see the point? You are a traitor to your country. And in theory, in England, we don't have the death penalty. No one gets put to death anymore. But as a legal technicality in England, if you are ever found guilty as a traitor to your country, the death penalty is there. Now, it would never be used, but can you see? So the point is, under the, new co under the old covenant, if you were an Israelite or lived in Israel, if you did these things, it was treason against your king, the Lord God of Israel. Therefore, it was a death penalty. Now, lots of people don't agree with the death penalty, but even those who, do, who don't can all understand this thing about treason. Okay. Now, the thing is that this covenant between God and Israel isn't on anymore. When Jesus died on the cross, the old covenant ended. God rejected Israel because Israel had rejected him. Okay, Now one day Israel will be back. But the point is, God rejected Israel as a nation, replaced it with the church. Temporary arrangement, as I say, Israel will be back. But the point is, the old covenant has now gone. And it certainly has no bearing whatsoever on the Christian church. Because, think about it, the Old Covenant was a covenant between God and the nation of Israel. Now, I live in England. When I'm in England, I am not subject to the laws of Germany. Do you see what I mean? It just doesn't apply to me. So the Old Covenant doesn't apply to us as Christians. We are not living in the nation of Israel with God as our king. Do you see what I mean? And at the moment, even if you were living in Israel, God is not the king of Israel actually at the moment. He's rejected them. The church is his people now. Israel will be his nation again in the future, but not at the moment. So here's the point. When you put the whole of the Bible together, the New Testament makes absolutely clear that the Old Covenant is gone. Now, when we ask the question... What do you do when you get bad behaviour in the church? Now, in Israel, when you got bad behaviour, well, people were either flogged, because they didn't have prisons then, they were either flogged or put to death. They were the punishments under that nation. 
But when we ask the question, in a church, if someone is even in unrepentant sin, what's the only thing that a Christian church can bring to bear against that person? You put them out of church. That's it. The only power the Christian church has to police itself is that you put someone out of the church, you don't have fellowship with them. Now, in the 4th century, there was a guy called Augustine of Hippo. And he remains today one of the most uh, influential thinkers in the Christian church. I can't even work out whether he was a genuine believer or not. He might just have been by the skin of his teeth, but he certainly had some really weird ideas. He worshipped Mary. He's considered today, the, the, well, no, for, for, for hundreds and hundreds of years, he's considered to be the father of the Catholic Church. I.e., it was his teachings that the Catholic Church was eventually based on. Now, one of the teachings that he developed, and, and he brought this out in a book called The City of God, is, was the idea, because remember, when the Roman Emperor supposedly became a Christian, again, I don't know whether he did or he didn't, it looks to me like he didn't, but at the end of the day, who cares? The point is he became a pretty weird Christian if he did get converted. And what he did, he made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. So now, Rome, which was a political state, obviously, nothing wrong with that, and which had the power of the sword, if you broke Rome's laws, you could be imprisoned, you could be tortured, or you could just be put to death. You paid the punishment for breaking their laws. Well, now, Christianity is their official religion. And priests, because by then the Christian church had priests, all completely wrong. But by then, priests were very, very powerful people. Church leaders were very, very powerful because they were seen to be the spiritual wing of the government. You see the point? Now, what Augustine did is, you know, he kind of, you know, put forward and, and, and worked out and made it all kind of make sense. The idea that the church and the political state were actually the same thing. That they were two sides of the same coin. So the point is, the state had political power, but the state was there above all else to defend the truth of the Christian church. Is it why? So what he did is he took this thing about in the Old Covenant that, 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 that Israel was God's nation and he simply said the Roman Empire is God's nation on earth. Therefore, the, 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 the power of magistrates, justices, all, all that kind of thing, they weren't any more just, well, okay, this person has been caught stealing. If we find him guilty, we've got to punish him. Now, disagreeing with the teaching of the church became a crime. You see the point? It wasn't before. But now, disagreeing with church doctrine is now a crime as surely as stealing or murdering was. So, what happened was... As a result of Augustine's teachings, the church, which by then was the Catholic Church, embraced a belief which said it is valid 
to use violence in order to spread the word of God. So the idea being was, if people were heretics, they would be punished by the state. And what they would do, they would torture you first, because if you then recanted your heresy because of the torture, your soul was saved. And the argument was, even though you might have to do a lot of soft suffering by being tortured, if it meant that you ended up going to heaven, that's better than if we didn't torture you and you went to the lake of fire. Can you see this utter, bizarre, evil, twisted, horrible way of thinking? And that is why, for a thousand years, the Catholic Church commanded political power by simply persecuting and murdering those who disagreed with it. Can you see the point? Because they went with this Augustinian doctrine that the church, the state, was, was the political wing and the church was the spiritual wing. Okay, So they actually would use violence against those they thought were the enemy of the church. So therefore we have a situation where in the name of maintaining the purity of the church and even in the name of spreading the gospel and evangelism we now have the use of violence justified against people. Now obviously as Christians we are very aware of the horrors of the Catholic Church and what it has done to people when it was able to get away with it. But here's the bit that might surprise you and it's, it's part of genuine church history that often is not as understood as it should be. In fact it's a part of church history that a lot of Christians actively try to hide. Because what isn't realised, when the Reformation came, all right, people like Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, okay, th these guys were Catholic priests and they got, they got saved. They read the Bible and they realised, hey, salva salvation is by believing in Jesus. And they came to know the Lord and that was wonderful. And they started preaching the Gospel. And there was a genuine great revival amongst thousands and thousands of people. And what happened was that countries that were completely controlled by the Catholic Church now realise, oh, the Catholic, that's a false gospel. And because so many people in those countries became Christians, even sometimes the kings themselves, what happened was those whole countries backed the reformers and created new churches and the Catholics had no power over them. Now, in the countries where the Catholic Church won, these new Christians, these reformers who were teaching against the Catholic Church, well, what did the Catholic Church do to people like that? They imprisoned them, they tortured them, they murdered them, alright? And, and, you know, Christians you know, are often saying, what an evil thing the Catholic Church did there. Absolutely no problem at all. But something else started to happen in the nations that became reformed. Where the Reformation won, where the state churches became genuine Christian churches, something else started to happen. Remember, the people with the influence, the main teachers in these churches, were 
people like Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, etc., etc. These were the thinkers, these were the men whose teachings were demonstrating from the Bible what the true gospel was. But the thing is, these guys were nevertheless converted Catholics. And any Catholic in their thinking was completely Augustinian because Augustine was the principal theologian of the Catholic Church. So even though the reformers genuinely came to know the Lord and genuinely came to realise the only way you can be saved is by faith in Jesus, and it's got nothing to do with the church at all, it's purely between you and Jesus, believing in Jesus as your saviour, although the reformers were clear on that, and preached that and therefore a great revival happened nevertheless they still believed with Augustine that their churches were the spiritual wing of the political powers in those countries now obviously they wanted to defend what they saw as being the truth now in those countries there were other people emerged and they were two different types of people some of them were heretics. They weren't Christians at all, alright? And they started to use their new freedom by spreading all these heresies against this gospel that the reformers were teaching. But there were other people as well who were genuine believers. They too had got converted, often under the preaching of the reformers. And what they said, as they were reading the Bible, they were saying, well look, hang on a sec, now that we know the Lord, now that we've got the Bible for ourselves, we've got to do everything that the Bible says. Now, the reformers believed in infant baptism. More than that, they believed you were born again when you were baptised as a baby. So, you know, they, they were definitely confused, alright? The reformers, people like Calvin, Zwingli, they were men of God, and they had wonderful understanding in some ways, but they were very, very confused in other ways because of all their Catholicism. They'd never had anyone to show them all the other bits where they were still wrong. And so now they have what they're doing being challenged, and they actually had people who were getting baptised as adults. Now, when the reformers got worried about this, they, they, they obviously felt we've got to protect the truth of the church. So what did they do? They used imprisonment and torture and murder against these people who they saw were being spiritually dangerous. Now, some of these people were genuine heretics. But here's the point. Are we supposed to put heretics to death? Are we supposed to torture them? Are we supposed to be violent? Are we supposed to throw them in prison? No. <clears throat> the only power the church has is to put someone out of the church. But the reformers, because they never got free of their Augustinianism, okay, <clears throat> therefore what happened, they used exactly the same tactics against other people that the Catholic Church had always used, and when it could, were even using um, against them. So can you see, what I'm trying to show you is whenever the balance of the Bible and the whole Bible is lost, it always causes trouble. It will always come to a bad outcome. Now some outcomes aren't as bad as others, 
But one of the tragedies is that one aspect of the Reformation is that it was actually a holocaust in which thousands and thousands of innocent people were killed by the newly converted reformers. And this is why I say this doctrine (coughs) which merges the church with political power is the most evil false doctrine that the Christian church has ever embraced. And the only reason that the Christian church is not officially doing this to people at the moment is because of the laws of the land and the general outlook of, 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 you know, of the nations where the church is. Obviously, we live in societies where it's considered wrong to murder people just because they disagree with you. And the only reason that state churches are not doing this still today is simply because they couldn't possibly get away with it. Can you see what I mean? But if they were in a society where it was A-OK and you had an oppressive state that disposed of people it didn't agree with, then if those states had a state church, the churches would be using that power to dispose of the people they disagreed with. So can you see, this is why I say this is one of the most evil and pernicious false doctrines that Christians have ever um, embraced. And so therefore, you know, I always like to say, be careful of having the reformers on too high a pedestal. That God used them, there's no doubt at all. That they were brave men. Many of them did give up their lives. But the tragedy is, there were many, many others who had their lives taken from them. Men, women and children. Because the reformers were never able to go with scripture on some of the most important aspects of life. So, you know, sort of, you know, I know there are times where, you know, in particular... John Calvin is even today by by Christians is is likened as second only to Paul the Apostle. Well, I got to tell you, when Paul the Apostle became a Christian, he gave up having people imprisoned and tortured and murdered. The reformers started doing it when they were converted. So there was something very, very wrong there, and we need to be aware of it. And there's a lot of amongst Christians, it's the equivalent of the Holocaust deniers. You know, people who want to say, oh, you know, the Nazis and the six million Jews, that never happened. Because they want to whitewash it. And there are lots of Christians, they want to whitewash the Reformation. No, countless hundreds and thousands of Anabaptists died because the Reformers had this false doctrine because they weren't looking at the Bible and the whole Bible. Okay, So, where we've got to now is it's got to be the Word of God and the whole Word of God. The Bible and the whole Bible. But we've still got to move on to this third thing because I've got to show you that even having the Bible and the whole Bible still isn't sufficient. Now, why not? Because even if you've got the Bible and the whole Bible, you can still go and spoil everything by adding things into the mix, which, although you say are revelations given to the Holy, by the Holy Spirit, are nevertheless not in the Bible. So now you've got the Bible and the whole Bible 
and stuff other than the Bible, but which you say is authoritative like the Bible. And so therefore, if you've got the Bible, the whole Bible, but more than the Bible, you're going to end up in big trouble as well. Now let me, let me actually show you this. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And this was one of the verses that really impacted me early on in my Christian life. I, I just kind of, I got it. Do you see what I mean? It was a verse, I got it. You know, I saw it. Now, 1 Corinthians 4 verse 6. Now, brothers, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. And that, what is written, well, scripture. That's what the word scripture means. The writings. So what you've got here is Paul saying, do not go beyond scripture. You see, the Bible, the whole Bible, but nothing but the Bible don't go beyond scripture. And look what he says then. He says, then you will not take pride in one man over against another. Now why does he say that? Well, I'll tell you, as long as you're clear that it's the Bible, the whole Bible, and nothing but the Bible, your authority is the Bible. You see what I mean? You're all the time going back to the Bible to decide things. But if you buy into the idea that there can be revelation, which is as authoritative as the Bible, but that doesn't come from the Bible, and if it doesn't come from the Bible, how can you establish whether it's biblical or not? Is it the point? If you buy into the fact that there can be extra-biblical revelation, then that extra-biblical revelation has got to come from somewhere. And blow me down, it always comes from people. Now, how do you decide which of these people have got genuine revelation and which haven't? Can you see what I mean? All the people out there vying for that, I've got this revelation from God. Oh, it's not in the Bible, but the Spirit showed me. How do you decide which of these revelations are right? And can you see, you're now at the mercy of deciding uh, who's the cleverest, or maybe who's the most spiritual, or who's the best preacher, or who, who, who writes the best books. Can you see what I mean? And now, rather than having the freedom to go by scripture, which is black and white and objective, you're now stuck having to decide which mere man are you going to follow at any one time. So do you see the point? So this principle, absolutely vital, do not go beyond scripture. And there are just three areas that I want to mention briefly to show you the kind of things now, we've seen what goes wrong if you've only got the Bible and not the whole Bible, but now I want to show you the sorts of stuff that can go wrong if you've got the Bible and the whole Bible, but then you bring in stuff that is more than the Bible, okay? So, very quickly, you know, some different areas. Well, when you look at church life for the last 1700 years, when you look at what churches are like, hierarchical leaders, public buildings, because you want as many people as you can, uh, services led from the front by the expert that you've brought in to be in charge, rituals with bread and wine, 
None of that is in the New Testament. For 1700 years, church life has been based on the teachings of the early church fathers who didn't even come on the scene until the Bible had been written and all the apostles were dead. Do you see the point? The whole of Christian church life for 1700 years is based on teachings which are totally extra-biblical. They are not to be found in the New Testament. Moreover, these teachings go against what the New Testament teaches. And yet we say that these extra-biblical revelations that came through the early church fathers, we say that they are more authoritative than the New Testament in the area of church life. There's no such thing in the Bible as the pastor of the church. There's no such thing in the New Testament as a church service. There's no such thing in the Bible as, as like the, the sanctuary that you... You see, all this is based on extra-biblical teachings. And yet Paul the Apostle said, do not go beyond Scripture. So for 1700 years, Christians have based church life on teachings which totally go beyond the Bible. Okay. So, you know, and, and, and if, if you look at the worst of Catholicism, worshipping Mary, purgatory, indulgences, all these things, nothing to do with the Bible. They all come from teachings which are outside of the Bible. But the whole point is, all the other genuine Christian churches, so they're not worshipping Mary, they're not doing indulgences, they, they haven't got the Mass, etc., etc. But when you look at their church life, it's just the Catholic Church minus all that. It's equally as unbiblical. So can you see, the whole of church life is extra-biblical. It's not going by the rule of the Bible the whole Bible and nothing but the Bible. Another area is today, uh, and I'm talking now about evangelical Bible believing Christians. I'm talking about genuine believers here. All right, I'm not talking about false believers who don't even believe that the Bible is the Word of God. I'm talking about genuine believers. And nowadays, if you look at how psychology has completely permeated virtually every aspect of doctrine and Christian practice. And, now, I mean, obviously, if we went by the Bible, you wouldn't have seminaries where you go to train to be a professional church leader, because the Bible didn't have anything to do with that. But the point is, nowadays, if you want to be unbiblical, and if you want to go be the pastor of a church, if you go to seminary, a lot of your time will be being taught modern psychology, so you learn how to handle people. You know, and, and this... Modern psychology was not invented until about 150 years ago. And yet nowadays, psychological teachings and techniques are being merged with the Bible as if, in order to be successful in the Lord, we need to understand psychological techniques. You see, it should be the Bible, the whole Bible, and nothing but the Bible. And yet we take so much of modern society, all the false teachings out there, all the doctrines of demons, as Paul the Apostle calls it, and we're building it in emerging it with Christian teaching. And none of it has anything to do with the Bible as well. Chuck in here the, you know, the charismaniacs. 
Now, I've got no problem with the gifts of the Spirit. That's completely biblical. But I'm talking about all the abuses that there are of the gifts of the Spirit. This madness where apparently the Holy Spirit is all the time raising people up into these ministries that the Bible knows nothing of. And yet, without these ministries, the church cannot be what God wants them to be. And again, can you see somehow we're being told the key to success, whatever that means, but the key to success is having all these teachings and understandings which are nothing to do with the Bible. None of those teachings and understandings even existed when the Bible was, you know, was written. Can you see the point? And, and you know, also with the charismatic movement, you know, the way that they're merging psychological techniques, and you get all this healing of the memory stuff, you know, this regressing people back into the womb, yeah, because apparently a lot of our problems are to do with things that happen when we were in the womb, so you have to go back, be counselled, all the absolute nonsense, and so much of what we see in the charismatic movement. You know, look at stuff like the Toronto Blessing, etc. You know, you know, the, you know that stuff in that genre. Now, the whole point is, all that has always existed in occult movements, and what we're doing, we're merging these things, and we're saying this is something that the Holy Spirit's doing. Now, let me make it clear: I'm not saying there are no manifestations of the Holy Spirit when He moves amongst His people. I'm not saying that at all. But I'm talking about these counterfeit ones. Where people are out of their heads when the Bible says that all things must be done decently and in order. Can you see the point? This is all another example of where we're actually going with extra biblical teachings and practices rather than observing this simple principle that I'm showing you that it's got to be the Bible, the whole Bible and nothing but the Bible. And now, just the, the third area that I'd say, which I think is tremendously important when it comes to extra-biblical stuff, is this. Beware of systematic theology. Be careful of theological systems. Be wary of creeds. Now, let me make it absolutely clear. I'm not saying that these things are wrong per se. If systematic theology is to you a teaching aid to help you get into scripture for yourself, that's great. If you're going with a theological system but you're going with it because you're utterly convinced that in every point it's what the Bible says. No problem. But what I'm warning you against is that when you get Christians who buy into these theological systems, the great danger is that you end up reading the Bible through the grid of your theological system rather than all the time judging your theological system by what the Bible says. Do you see the point? So whenever we have theological systems, creeds, systematic theology, if they are merely statements about what people think the Bible teaches, and that you are simply receiving that as teaching and then testing it for yourself, 
no problem. But I'm talking about the fact, and there is no question about this, that throughout history and still today, there are so many Christians that their thinking comes purely out of a predetermined theological system that maybe they've been raised in, or if they went to seminary, that's what that denomination taught, or whatever. And that what they're then doing is they're adhering to that as their definition of what the Bible teaches. And the problem is that when you do that, because I'll tell you, over the, the years I'm all the time readjusting my understanding because I'm coming to understand things in the Bible and they, they, you know, all the time I'm having to readjust my existing understanding. Now that's exactly what it should be. But if your existing understanding is written in stone and immovable, you see the point? Then, when you hit things in the Bible that don't fit with your system, I'll tell you what you do. You simply explain them away. Rather than explain them, you explain them away. And I'm going to show you this much more powerfully in the next talk, how that happens. So, therefore, we have absolutely got to make sure that whatever existing beliefs we adhere to regarding Scripture, there's nothing wrong in having existing beliefs. Of course, we, we've got to be going with our best understanding. But what is absolutely vital is that we are not reading Scripture and interpreting it in the light of what we already think it says. And that we are always open to change our understanding as a result of having seen something new in Scripture. And this is why I say, be careful of systematic theology. Be careful of theological systems. Be careful of creeds. Because the trouble is, you can hold to a theological system and then you read something in the Bible that you've missed. And you see it, and the problem is, you're seeing it clearly, but if you accept it at face value, your whole theological system falls to bits. Can you see what I mean? Because theological systems are like, you know, when you, know, when you do decks of cards and you build them up into a house. And you realise, oh dear, that card at the bottom, that's not, that's not what the Bible says. Oh, if I take it out. And, hold it. and so what you do is you explain what the Bible says away to protect your system rather than to be willing to rethink your system irrespective of what the consequences might be. And what you've done is you've replaced the authority of Scripture with a theological system. And blow me down, you're not going by the Bible, the whole Bible and nothing but the Bible. You're going now with the Bible, the whole Bible and Calvinism or Arminianism or Amillennialism or Dispensationalism or any other ism you like. Now the problem is not what the individualism is and this is, well, come back for the next talk. The problem isn't what the individualism is. The problem is that you've got an ism. And freedom, revelation here, is when we look back and our isms have become wasms. Only then, I think, can you be happy you're really getting into scripture for itself.
Do you see what I mean here? So therefore, I would argue that when you've got Christians who are free of these theological systems, that when you really get to know, you're going to find they're a bit of this one, they're a bit of that one, they're a bit of the other one, they're like pick and mix. Do you have pick and mix in your supermarkets, the stalls with all the different candies, and you get a bag, and you, in England, we call that pick and mix. Well, if you're going with the Bible rather than theological systems, then anyone who gets to know you who's got theological systems, they're going to say, well, you're just bits and pieces of everything. And I say, yep, that's me. This is what I mean. Because all that matters is what the Bible says. And if what the Bible says doesn't fit in with the theological system, well, okay, tough. Can you see the point here? Our final authority has got to be Scripture and not what anyone else says about it. Whether it's me or anyone. Can you see what I mean? Calvin, Zwingli, it doesn't matter who. It's the Bible that is the final authority. People, there are wonderful Bible teachers out there. People like John MacArthur and many, many others whose names we'll never know. Really excellent, helpful Bible teachers. There's, there's nothing wrong. They know that they are merely trying to explain Scripture. They want you to test it for yourself. Okay? But the point is, they are not the final authority. And if they really understand, they would be horrified if they thought for one minute that anyone thought they were. You see what I mean? Scripture is the final authority. So, therefore, when I say that a fundamental principle of properly being able to interpret the Bible is that we go with the Bible, the whole Bible, and nothing but the Bible. Now, what I'm going to, we're going to break now and have some coffee, and then uh, when we come back, what I'm going to show you is how this principle, this understanding of how to interpret the Bible, was upheld and maybe the most foundational doctrine of the Christian faith was protected and pro properly presented. So I'm going to show you that this principle, when properly observed, led to the early church defining quite properly one of the most foundational doctrines of the Christian faith. And I'm then going to show you that later on in church history, when another doctrinal problem came up, the failure to adhere to this principle led to two of the most damaging isms that Christians have been fighting about ever since. So I'm going to show you how this principle, properly adhered to, gave us the most foundational doctrine of the Christian church. In fact, the Trinity. Well, I'm going to show you that the church's failure to properly apply this principle has led to the disastrous division virtually throughout church history, but especially in the last five, six hundred years, of the so-called doctrines of Calvinism and Arminianism. 
And when we look at this principle in regards to that, when you understand how it worked in regards to the Trinity, I'm then going to show you that if it had been properly applied when looking at what the Bible teaches about one, predestination, and two, free will and man's responsibility, if the same principle had been adhered to, we would never have had the problem of Reformed theology versus Arminianism. So, come back, if you dare, after a cup of coffee. Or, or dinner. Or, or after dinner, in fact. Or tomorrow. Or I'll just go home and then you won't have to come back at all. Actually, about an hour from now. About an hour. Yeah, okay. Anybody uh, has last minute food prep?